Welcome to the Evolvepreneur podcast channel, which is sponsored by Evolvepreneur.biz, a new online community-based platform designed to help develop your skills and knowledge to be massively successful in this new digital age. Your host today is John North, who is a three-time number one international best-selling author and strategic marketer. John's passion is to help business owners to master the online marketing world. Welcome to the Evolvepreneur podcast channel. I'm your host, John North. My very special guest today is Ron Gulucci from Neverland. He's the best-selling author of eight books and popular contributor at Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He works with CEOs and executives who are pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. Welcome, Ron, to the show. John, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so I was talking earlier with you and you said you have quite a lot of Australians who have interviewed you lately. So you, obviously we have to find a way to get you Australia, to Australia for a conference or something. I would love to come visit Australia. It's, a, it's on the bucket list. Cool. And uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. Nice. I, I, work, I work cheap when it comes to great travel opportunities like that. <laughs> do you have one of these sort of people that actually, um, when they travel, they never see anything? Or do you try to get some time? Uh, most places I want to come home, but in Australia, I would definitely tack on uh, time to stay. Yeah. Uh, because my wife would definitely not allow me to go without her. Fair enough. Yeah, exactly. It was a long trip, you know. You've got to have company, right? <laughs> um, um, well, my, my daughter's been. My daughter spent uh, two months there when she was 12 on a, on a, um, a student ambassador trip. So okay. she's seen... Uh, a bunch of great parts of Australia, and so I'm, I've been jealous ever since. There you go. All right, so today we're going to talk about leadership and and um, change and all that kind of stuff, which is which is predominantly scary for a lot of people. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, will typically come out of a business. They might even be in a bit leadership role when they come out to be an entrepreneur too. And then obviously down the track, they're going to have to employ people as well as as obviously become a leader in their own business. And I think a lot of businesses or lead you know, business owners suffer from that kind of leadership issue. So today we're going to talk about a lot of different areas of that. Um, but first I want to tell me a little bit about your startup. You know, how did you get going in business yourself? Like was there any sort of major obstacles you had to overcome or what did you, what did you start what you do today? And, and still overcome. You know, we're, we're a 14-year-old startup uh, at Navalent. You know, I think when three of us left, we were in a large consulting firm in New York City and we loved our work. And at the time organizational leadership work wasn't a center plate discipline for many consulting firms. But, and we decided we didn't want to work for a big firm anymore because it, it had stopped being about the craft we loved and more about just feeding the dinosaur. Mm. So we, wanted to, we, we, we still believe we could do this work at scale, but do it the way we loved. So the three of us left, three of us at that time left to go do the work on our own that we loved. It wasn't to go start a firm. Mm-hmm. But then we real quickly realized, gosh, we're going to need help if we want to do this. So we're going to have to have other people come with us. <laughs> so it, it was such an accidental series of choices on how we grew and scale Navalent. We've had lots of bumps and, you know, three steps forward, step back, part of the journey. I don't know that we have 15 years of experience. I think we might have, have like five years of experience three times. Yeah. I think as you get older into a, into a more mature business, it's, your challenges become um, the same challenges, but usually with extra zeros on the end of them. <laughs> Well, part of the challenge is that unlike when we began the business, the number of practitioners, you know, organizational and leadership consulting mm-hmm. is now everybody and their mother's a coach. Everybody in their mother. Now, isn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh. And so, and they're untrained, unskilled, uninformed. 
Um, but they hang the shingle out, they put up a website, they write a couple of blogs, and suddenly we're being compared to them. Mm. And, and so differentiating ourselves among a massive ocean of tens of thousands of people that were not doing this five or 10 years ago, that has been one of the probably the most disruptive part of our business is how do we figure out how to compete in a world of uninformed uh, buyers and prospects mm-hmm. who don't know how to compare. It's certainly interesting. And I mean, uh, the same thing is sometimes some, some people get into new businesses or new industries because they, it's new and then they pro- probably don't even think about the fact that, you know, their competition is going to figure out that if they're successful, other people are going to start copying them. And before you know it, you've got well, a bunch I think, of things too. I think just it, no, nobody cared. I mean, you know, years ago when we began the business, the idea of doing leadership and organizational work was sort of like a, yeah, that's for OD people. Mm. And then suddenly, you know, leaders figured out having help was cool. Mm. And suddenly everybody said, hey, you know, I'm retiring. I'll be a coach. Or, hey, you give good advice. You should be a coach. Mm. So people started, you know, logging on to websites and getting pieces of paper that said you're certified to coach. But they have no behavioral science background. They have no clinical background. They have, maybe they used to run a department in some company. Mm. But their basis of advice is so sketchy and thin. But they're out there, you know, calling themselves coaches and consultants and leadership development experts and organizational experts. It's a, it's a very interesting challenge when you have, when your competitive set is so buried and mm. the buyers don't know it. Yeah. And educating the buyers is the hardest part because obviously the internet nowadays can just about Google anything. So you, your buyer can be in theory educated before they can come to you, but they're not. In they, well, they always are. They're always mm. informed in some form, whether they're educated accurately or not is a different issue. Mm. But the decision, the decision pathway to any professional services from now doesn't start with you and then they go vet your ideas. They start with vetting your ideas first. And so if they can't find you digitally, you can be sure they won't pick you. Mm. So you've got to at least be in their pathway when they're deciding so that when they arrive at your doorstep, they will have already had some predisposed notion of who you are and what you do and why your ideas match their, their needs. Um, and so finding a way to distinguish your voice in that noise for any entrepreneur today uh, is, is, is a major hurdle. Mm, to be seen in, in the in the crowd because at the end of the day, there's so much of it now. You know, once upon a time, you know, content was king. Nowadays, you've got to... Because I noticed there was something... I was looking at some of the things you've done and you've done a TEDx talk and actually a Google talk, which I didn't think didn't realise Google talks existed. Um, and, and one of the topics was being more powerful than powerless. And I thought that was quite interesting. Could you sort of tell me a little bit about that? Because it's probably something interesting because what happens with an entrepreneur is suddenly he goes into his own business and he's got a lot of power, right? Well, so we, um, for our book, Rising to Power, it was a 10-year study with more than 2,700 leaders. And one of the things we discovered, you know, we knew going into the study was that, you know, more than half of leaders, as they ascend broader influence or as they broaden their sphere, um, fail within the first 18 months. And we thought, gosh, we can do better than that. We've got to find a way to figure out how to, you know, stem the tide. Mm -hmm. And one of the dimensions of power uh, of leadership we studied was the use of power. Mm And, you know, we expected to find that the typical abuses of power, p- people who are using it self-indulgently, people using it for self-interest, uh, people who are, you know, unethical or immoral even. We've seen plenty of that in the news, you know, in the last... Mm, for sure. <laughs> doesn't matter what part of the world you're in, you're going to find it. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, John, that was not the greatest abuse of power we found. We certainly found that present. But by far the far greater abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People too afraid, 
too uncomfortable using it, so they just set it aside. Mm -hmm. And in its place, curried favor with people, bought their popularity, doled out way too many yeses, and were so avoidant of disappointing people, were so afraid of being seen as a power monger, that they exerted no power at all. And we, you know, we typically refer to those leaders, we have labels for them. Oh, they're just insecure. They don't have a backbone. They're yeah. not comfortable being assertive. They're really nice people. And we don't realize that that abuse of power is every bit as destructive as someone who's got their hands in the till or who's self-interested. Uh, and we've got to treat it the same way and expect our leaders to come to these roles uh, to use power for the good it can do. Entrepreneurs struggle with that because they're founders and they're idea people. And they suddenly realize that now I've got 10 employees, now I've got 20 employees, now I've got 50 employees. And I have to influence them. I have to shape their direction. I have to disappoint them. Mm. And, and that often uh, comes hard for many entrepreneurs. It's actually interesting in Australia, we've got it, I don't know if we've ever heard of it, it's called the tall poppy syndrome. And, um, and it's quite interesting in Australia because what happens is if you rise above your station too much in Australia, and maybe it comes from England when we all came over, or a large percentage came over as, um, as, as criminals, but the reality is as soon as you rise above a certain level, um, Australians want to pull you back down again. Um, so it's probably even worse over here where, where leadership was thinking, well, if I rise too high, I'll end up, you know, people will start pulling you down and start doing that. And I think I see that even, you know, globally, you know, if anybody sort of rises up, people tend to want to try and pull them back down again to their own, you know, give them down to their yep. soul. And I think, I mean, I, and I would agree that tall poppy syndrome, which I think, you know, the U.S. has its own version of that, mm. it's, you know, its own version of envy. Um, but the key is how do you rise up, right? We still need people who want to have prominence, who want to have influence, who are going to be successful. The question is, who did you bring with you? Mm. The question is, and one of the one of the key distinguishing factors in the leaders, so if half of them were failing on the way up, we wanted to understand what were the other half doing? Mm. How were they sticking the landing and thriving at a higher altitude in life, in organizations? And one of the major dimensions that set them apart was their connection, how they built relationships with bosses, peers, boards, advisors, investors, direct reports. And one of the key differentiating factors of how they prioritize their stakeholders was not who they could get something from, but who they could make successful. These are the, every organization has these bosses, right? It's the ones everybody wants to work for. Yep. And you, you if I you're around. I like that originally. I think when I worked in Westpac, I had a boss that um, I really, I wanted to work for. And as soon as I worked for him, he made his, made his mission to get me a promotion. Yeah. And, and they, you know, if you're around them, your career is going to thrive. Mm. Well, these leaders set, set in motion, you know, a, a, a priority to, the, to make others successful. So you're not going to have a tall poppy syndrome issue if, as you rise up, your head is not sticking that far above those you're bringing with you. If you're bringing others with you, then you have a field of tall poppies, it's harder to take down. Mm, true. It makes sense. So, um, so what sort of sets those leaders apart? You talked about the fact that 50% of them, all, you know, were actually successful. What, what were they doing? particularly in those, like I know she talk about four different sort of differentiated capabilities to set them apart. What's those four things? So that? the first, so one was is connection. So that's the relationship piece. The other was context. These leaders could read the tea leaves around them. They could, they, they were contextually intelligent. They didn't just slap on answers blindly. They mm -hmm. looked around and they wondered how things, why things were the way they were. Um, and they adapted accordingly. Entrepreneurs sometimes become blind to their own ideas. Um, and don't think about the customers they serve. They don't think about, are people buying what I'm selling? They get so 
enamored with their own idea that they forget they have to commercialize it, they forget they have to adapt it. Mm. So context means you're curious, you're adapting, you're understanding all the time. Great entrepreneurs can see on the landscape the unmet need. They see the opportunity for the idea, but then they stop being contextual and they just start slapping and repeating their idea. Mm. Uh, they don't scale, they just repeat yeah. or replicate. Yeah. And so context, the contextually intelligent um, look around all the time and they ask better questions. They don't just have answers. The second was breadth. So many leaders, as they rise up in organizations, tend to grow up through, through some silo, whether it's, you know, if they, they grew up in finance, they see the world economically. If they grew up in marketing, they see the world through consumers. If they grew up in technology, they see the world through bytes and, and apps and, and wiring. Entrepreneurs need to see, as they build organizations, how the pieces fit together. So, you, you know, typically when you're you, you think you're scaling, you're, just, you're actually just growing, right? You're not scaling. You just, I hired a salesperson, I have a market, I rent my marketing person, I have an operations person, I have an operate, I have a, you know, a, a, an administrative person. And you don't really begin to see how these pieces fit together. You know, breadth means seeing the world as a whole, not just the parts, seeing your organization as capabilities. So I see go to market, and that's a combination of sales, marketing, and, you know, insights. I see uh, innovation as R&D and marketing and, um, uh, you know, con marketing insights. I, I see how the pieces fit together um, and I build bridges across the seam. So great entrepreneurs don't do hub and spoke leaderships. They don't m make the organization be overly reliant on them. They build bridges across the connections. Mm -hmm. So they create cohesion in their organizations. And the last one was choice. They, they, they're how they construct decisions, how they make choices. So many leaders don't design governance into their organization. They, they, don't, they, they, be, they create all decision pathways to them and they make the organization overly dependent on them for all of the choices rather than building decision-making down into the organization itself and making it less reliant on you and building in governance structures that allow decision-making to, to happen at the closest possible point of, of impact. Many entrepreneurs dole uh, out way too many yeses. They just keep saying yes to everything and don't realize how they're diluting the resources of the organization and, and, and diluting focus. Um, many entrepreneurs, uh, the, the hardest word for them to say is no, uh, but it is one of the most important words that they learn to say right from the beginning, to even to great ideas, because if you've committed to a certain number of good ideas, you have to narrow the focus of the organization and, and too many entrepreneurs find that way too hard to do. So breadth, context, choice, connection, those were the things that set great leaders and entrepreneurs apart. Uh, and help them stick the landing. Okay, makes sense. See, I was actually, I was dealing with a, uh, someone in the States a couple, about a year or so ago, and, and basically what I noticed in his organisation was he had a lot of people running around doing things, but none of them would, would make a decision. So as soon as you asked anything tricky that potentially could get them into trouble, because the way that the leadership was, it was like, I think it basically blew up when if you made a mistake, what would happen is he would basically... Um, they, it scared them into a point where they wouldn't make any decisions themselves. So they all oh, got to ask someone else. And so they'd push it up the line to someone else and that person would avoid making that decision. And you could get, couldn't get anything done because no one would stand up and say, look, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to go do this. And, and that's a scary way to run a business thing because in the outside world, it means you get nothing done, right? Well, it's, and, and, and you're describing the, you know, the sort of the, the, the all roads lead to one guy governance, mm. right? Mm. And, you can play the, the, you almost see the game show. Whose decision is it anyway? Playing out. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
leaders, and I wish leaders could hear that, that example, John, and understand just how destructive that is. Um, it's not just that you slow things down or you can confuse people. You really are making the organization weaker if you haven't designed governance. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and as part of your scaling, so many leaders, you know, it's the classic, um, you know, they grow to, they're the $20 million company trapped in the body of a $5 million organization. Right? Yeah. Like, the teenage, like the teenage boy in his dad's suit. They just haven't grown into themselves yet. And that's almost always a symptom of fa- failure to scale the organization and failure to scale governance. And I think that's an interesting thing is um, what I notice a lot is that, you know, I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs and and, and a lot of them tend to be great starters of things, um, but not necessarily in there for the long haul. And I think part of the the secret to any scalable business is obviously to be able to stick stick it out for the long haul and be very clear about what you want to do. And I think a lot of these guys will start something, but they can't stay there. They can't manage it. They can't grow it. They're an ideas person. And, and you know what? I mean, more power to you. If you know that's who you are, then um, then great. Um, then then make sure that at the appropriate time when it really is time to scale and replicate and build in efficiencies, get a CEO who can do that. Mm. Uh, don't mm. try and do it you yourself. Know, you're not willing to grow into a CEO mm. that can grow the organization beyond you. So many so many founders build the organization around their personality and around them, and in the process, they kill their own baby. Mm. As they, it is such an extension of their identity that they just can't let go. Yeah. And they don't realize the degree to which they're suffocating the very thing they created. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm, I know when I was running, um, I was running an accounting software business and we established, once we got to a point, certain size, we got, we established sort of leaders or managers in those roles that were responsible for those, those people and those roles. They employed people and stuff like that. And I look back and think to myself, well, you know, these, these people, you know, we had a whole saying, you hired them, you fired them. Um, and so basically they took responsibility for the people they hired uh, as well as the fact that, you know, often like in some organisations you hire someone and you're just going to pop them in there and say, hey, hello, I've just hired someone and, and you're in a situation now that you've got to kind of deal with them and you didn't want them in the first place and the whole thing goes belly up from that point. So I always felt that if you wanted to whinge and bitch about the person that got hired we actually had them come in on a, on a sort of a trial day and they would sit with all the staff in that area and that thing and that staff would have a vote as well as to whether they liked them or not. Because at the end of the day, if they didn't like them and they, you know, they were the wrong person, they would be in a lot of trouble. Um, and so we sort of like, the only downside of that, I think, is that you may not get enough friction in the business in terms of some, someone good coming in. Well, I think, and I think if you, if you design the organization to design out friction, right, mm. to design out any conflict, then you really won't get any, and then you really are in trouble because if you don't have conflict, you have no creativity and you have no innovation. Mm. And so you need conflict. You know, now you need good governance as a place to mediate the, con- the conflict so that it can actually be managed well. Otherwise, the conflict goes underground uh, into gossip and collusion and all kinds of other uh, unhealthy channels of information. And then you as a leader are finding that you're never getting any helpful information. You're getting only sifted data, only sanitized information, and suddenly everybody's telling you only what you want to hear. Mm, mm. Yeah, it was quite interesting because um, in the early days, you know, probably in my naivety, I hired different people and what I found out was I didn't realise that these particular two people that were in support, our technical support department, were essentially arch enemies um, in life because their two religions conflicted so much that they basically, you know, fought all the time. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, like one of them had to go in the end because there was so, there was so much friction going on there. Um, and, and yeah, it, 
the reality was that they it was just their upbringing. That's the way they were. But yep. we had to try and find a way to get around it. Sometimes we move people away and put them in different departments to try and avoid that situation. But without that kind of background knowledge, you're realising, hey, you don't don't hire these two basically people from two, two totally different uh, religions and backgrounds because you know, they wanted to fight all the time. They just want to have go at each other. Well, and, and, and that's, in that case, that's an unfortunate reality because that, you know that's an inexcusable reason to let people fight. Mm. Absolutely, it was nuts. We couldn't understand, like, it, and it was subtle. It wasn't, um, you know, it was underlying. It wasn't something you'd noticed in the, in the early days, but you just noticed that friction was there, and it wasn't the greatest sort of friction friction that you wanted. Like, if they were pushing each other to succeed, different story. Where they're actually trying to set each other up for failure. Well, <laughs> so, and I, you know, I've I've seen CEOs inherit that kind of. I mean, I, I in one of my HBR posts, I talk about you know, uh, cross departmental rivalries mm. um, and how you resolve them. And in, in a very similar case where you had a head of supply chain logistics who were at each other's throats for decades, you know, when you had a new CEO come in, and of course, that, I mean, that, that conflict just trickles down, right? So mm-hmm. if the two leaders are fighting, so is everybody else in the departments. And at the, at the seam of that organization, you can have no breadth. So you're only going to have destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're hemorrhaging cost, you're hemorrhaging capacity, you're hemorrhaging opportunity. And the CEO sat both leaders down and listened to both sides of the story, you know, which a lot, largely were irrational and made it very, very clear. He said, you have three weeks to fix this mess so I don't notice any of it, or you will both be exited from the organization. Mm. That's it. Mm. And of course, in three weeks, they were just fine. <laughs> and and you never saw another, another petty, silly argument from them again. Wow. They, didn't, they didn't become best friends, but they, 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 you know, they, at that point, you have so vilified the other person, right? Mm. Now, in your case, it was about religion. Mm. You've so vilified the other person and you've concocted them that you have no idea who they really are as people. You, you cannot mm. see them as a human being. You can only see them as your rival or your enemy or your nemesis. Mm. And so that's all, that's all they are to you. So everything they do has to be discredited. Any of their work has to be uh, refuted. And it's, it's foolish. It's, and, but, but, but shame on the leader who allows it to go on. Yeah. If yeah. that's happening yeah. in your organization and you're not absolutely big in the bud, then you're sending to everybody else the message that says, hey, if you don't like somebody, you don't have to work with them. You can just treat them like, you can treat them disrespectfully and dismissively, and that's perfectly okay. So it, it, one of the things that I notice in business sometimes is that you are slow to fire someone. Um, and sometimes, you know, like you think I can fix them, I can get them back on track. But sometimes you look back and you think, I should have fired them, they were cancerous oh, anyway. You yep. know, you know you, how do you make that decision sometimes? I mean, a lot of leaders don't like firing. And when we used to, like I said, we had a saying, if you hired them, you fired them because that it was your on you to make sure you make the right choice in the first place. And took yep. So you put a, put a link in the show notes to, I just, I, my last uh, HBR piece was called five reasons executives avoid firing people on their team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it really is for executives. It's torture. If you have to fire somebody you hired um, and you know, you, it's the, uh, it's the savior syndrome. I'll fix them. It's the just, the just one more chance syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's the, Oh my gosh, the people are going to think that I, they're going to, it's a reflection of me if I fire them because I hired them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you, they have all these diluted rationalizations for not doing it. And you have to come to the place where you realize, A, it's incredibly cruel to leave them in a job that they're floundering in, that everybody is looking at them failure. Mm-hmm. And B, if you don't fire them, you're going to be seen as weak. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think you're avoiding <laughs> people misperceiving your leadership because you're keeping them, because mm-hmm. you hired them, what they're really doing is saying, you know, if you're if you're willing to ignore poor performance, then that makes you weak. 
Mm. And, and you're putting everybody else in the organization at risk because of their inability to keep up with the role. So you, you really need to think about not the discomfort of what it will mean to fire them, but all the, all the um, pain and frustration you're causing by not firing them. Mm, mm. And, and the interesting thing is like I've fired a lot of people over the, over the years because we used to hire a lot of people for tech support and stuff like that. And, and that, their shelf life was only about 18 months because they'd go through one year of technical support for accounting software and then they want to go. <laughs> it's bring to, financial brings out the worst in people. But I was getting quite good at firing, firing people. And what I found was that most of the time, by the time you got to fire them, they actually wanted to go anyway. Like a lot of them knew it was coming. They were just like, they were just stringing along as long as they could go. Well, it's actually a relief to them to get fired. So sometimes sure. thinking about, oh, that person's going to take it. A couple of them really got it left field. They didn't even know it was coming. Unbelievable. But that means they're just not self-aware. But the reality is most people that are in that situation, they know it's coming. And sometimes it's a relief to get them out of there in the first place because they're just going to hang in there for the money. Then they're in for the wrong reason. Well, they, I mean, most of the, most did would they quit and they quit and stayed. You know, the good talent, the good talent quits and leaves, but the yes. bad talent quits and stays. Exactly. Um, and 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 frankly, if you fire somebody who's surprised by being fired, that really means you didn't do your job, mm. right? Because mm. people who are not performing need to be told that right from the get go. And yeah. if their expectations of them are not clear and they don't know they're underperforming, then you're really not doing your job as a leader. Yeah, I mean, that's a great surprise. If someone comes to you and says, I wasn't even expecting to be fired today, then then something's gone wrong in that process. And it didn't happen very often, but occasionally, you know, it's like, well, I'm not self-aware of what's going on or you know, what's happened there. Why did you suddenly? And, and they're the worst probably when they leave because they, they really hold a grudge. Like, they, you know, I think with firing people, what I always looked at was if you left them as friends and they didn't feel too bad in the process, at least they wouldn't go and bad mouth you out in the world, real big world. Well, and I, you know, I think I, I would wish for HR departments that when a, when a hiring manager or a leader has to fire somebody, um, I would want that leader held accountable for how did you fail? What did mm. you do to contribute to that person's inability to perform? Mm. Um, I, I, I would want every leader when they're having to let go of somebody for performance reasons to be held accountable for their contribution to the problem because they're not innocent. Mm, um, now, you may be an incoming leader and you inherited a mess and you inherited a bad team. That, that may be different. But over time, you know, if after six or, six or nine months, people on your team are underperforming, you've let that happen. Mm. And, and, we, and we as leaders have to take responsibility for people who in our organizations don't thrive. Because if they're not thriving, we're partly responsible for that. Mm. So do you think, um, like, can leadership be taught? Like, can someone who's really poor leader become a good leader? Or is it something that you kind of, you know, some people have an well, I, th I mean, I think, any, I mean, I don't think any leaders, no good leaders that way naturally, right? I don't think there's any born leader. Yep. I think some people have, have more proclivities and instincts than others for certain parts of leadership, but it's all learned behavior. Mm. Um, the question is, when do you start learning it? Mm. If you wait too late in your career, where you're really struggling and failing to start learning, that's probably going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wish, I would wish organizations, you know, to the, the moment you sense somebody has instincts to lead others, start then. So every time you hit, you put them in their first supervisory role, or their first director role, or even their first vice president role, they are increasingly prepared for those roles. Um, so often people do it backwards. They call them high potential, then promote them and then let them flounder. Mm. And then when they're, suffering then give them coaching and, and sometimes i've seen the scenario where a good performer in a certain sort of business where they might be in sales or whatever suddenly they think oh you're performing really well you're the best salesman i'll make you the sales manager yes. 
and and you kind of yeah. and you destroy it, and suddenly the sales go down, and this guy's not necessarily got the skill set to be a leader because they never actually taught him anything, and then and then he's in trouble and he's lost lost his um, role together. Then isn't he? Well, so what's unfortunate is that, and it's so weird to me, John, that even in 2019, we're still talking about the fact that people are confusing great technical skills for leadership potential. Mm. Like, like if we, we learned, we learned in the 80s that was a bad idea. Yeah, um, and, and that if you want to predict somebody's ability to lead, you can't look at their technical performance. Mm. Um, well, as a coach, you know, like some people, some people are much better coaches than they were ever players or, or athletes in their day. Like, it, it's not necessarily that you know, they were great athletes and then they became a great coach. So often that's not necessarily the way they go. Like a lot of great coaches were sometimes were never great athletes at all. Right. And so you need to look at what the requirements of the role are, what the requirements of leadership are and test for those capabilities mm. and not look, um, and not look at whether or not um, they're good at the, at the content of the work themselves. Because I mean, I think we all know, Almost always the best engineers, the best salespeople, the best scientists, the best anything do not make the best leaders because they were those things. And in fact, that often sets them back mm. because they have a hard time letting go. And yeah. all they try and do is clone themselves and other people. Yeah. And then they get frustrated because those people can't do what they can do. Right. And so they just, they just wound them. Mm. Mm. And they keep firing them or whatever until they get to a point where they've <laughs> got a bunch of people they never really should have had in the first place. <laughs> exactly. And, it's, and then rinse and repeat, right? Mm. Yeah. So um, if you're talking, and I know that you've probably grown from a very small business to a big business. In a business, say you're a solopreneur, like you're on your own and you want to then grow and scale your business, what, who's the first person you should hire? Should you hire, and I've, so, I've had some interesting comments about different scenarios of this one, says hire a manager first, then get them to hire people. Or do you hire people around you to solve your problems in terms of stuff you don't want to do? Um, and then move into a manager and get a manager in later at a certain level? I mean, what, what do you think is the best method? Well, I, I think it depends on what your business is, right? It, it all must emanate from strategy. It all must emanate from what is your identity in the marketplace? Who are you trying to serve? How do you serve them? Um, and uh, what, you know, how, how will you grow the capabilities you need to, to differentiate? Mm -hmm. So every decision about organization and talent must emanate from identity. And too many entrepreneurs, even solopreneurs, think, "Well, I, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm one person. Why do I need a strategy? You, you, you especially need a strategy because you're only one person. Yeah. And so you have you are more predisposed to to waste resources that you haven't got because you're only one person. So you have to every dime you invest in your business, um, you have to preciously consider what's the best use of that. And most solopreneurs don't realize that there's actually really no such thing as a solopreneur. Right, you have a tech person doing your website. You have somebody doing social media for you. You have somebody do your dry cleaning. You you know you have you have a team. You have people who are helping you some in some form. You have somebody who does you know some type of marketing work for you. You have somebody who does fulfillment of your orders for you that you rent five hours a week. Mm. So you're not really a solopreneur, just because you haven't got people on your payroll or that are you know, direct report employees working full time, does that mean you haven't got a team? And the best solopreneurs learn early on to treat those people as a team, not just people who are their vendors. True. Yeah. Very good. Mm. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it's a case catch 22. Cause I think, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, if someone isn't a very good leader or a manager and stuff like that, but a very good ideas person, they need that 
that person that will actually be consistent and stable for them in the background. So I think you've got to pick the opposite of whoever you are, I think, sometimes, so that you can match up that that capability. Because sometimes if you try and hire someone who's who's like you, and I see that a lot where, you know, the first person you hire is actually the person who's like you because you like to be around the same sort of people, will drive yourself insane because you'll end up, you know, they'll never get anything done either. Um, and I read a book once called The E-Myth a um, long, long time ago, and one of the things that it said in the book was to write out position statements and on your business and work out who does what in the business and write up that position statement and sign it yourself, but then hire someone, but hire them to that position statement. Don't go and hire somebody because they were really good at something and you thought, I'll have them. Yeah. Yeah, to be sure. Mm. So I thought that was um, the best advice I ever got, I think, in some respects. In fact, it got me at one point there in my career, I had to um, had to give up on the fact that my business wasn't going to make it because we got hit with um, a big tax change many years ago and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to close this business down. And I went and mm. got a job. And it was interesting, the guy that asked me um, before, he said, before I'm going to interview, I want you to send me a job description of the sales role. It was a sales role, so a sales manager role. Send me a job description. So I sent him a job description from my own database that I'd already done and it got me an interview and got me the job because he said, I've never seen anybody write a job description like that before. And, hmm. and the interesting thing was that, you know, it's something he'd asked and wonder how many people in the marketplace could have even done that, what he asked for. Um, it's kind of an interesting idea to actually write your own job description and tell me what you think the job should entail. Um, yeah, so it's quite interesting. It's a smart, it's a smart boss. That's the yeah. way yeah, I, I never thought, I've never heard it before. I've never had anybody have done it before. In fact, I've never done it before because I don't think it's, it's, if you're looking for a manager, I guess, it's a different story. And now I guess he was, that's why he's looking for a manager. If you look after a lower level staff member, they wouldn't have a clue because they might have any experience anyway. So they're almost like a wasted exercise. I'm um, trying to do it for someone who has no idea what they're doing anyway. You're going to have to train them. So do you, in your, um, I was reading about you've written eight books and I gather you've got a free ebook as well that we can give people. Yeah. So I'd love to, you know, if you if your listeners need more content or mm-hmm. want to learn more about our work, our website is navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. Mm-hmm. And we've got a free, a free quarterly magazine on leadership and organizations and growing businesses that you can come and get rich content for and sign up for. It's a free magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Navalent Quarterly. Uh, we have a free ebook on leading change. So if you if you're trying to transform and scale your organization, you can come get our ebook at uh, it's called Leading Transformation, and um, it's at navalent.com/transformation. Right. So we've also got uh, great videos and white papers and all kinds of rich content you can come uh, uh, you know benefit from. You can also find me at Twitter at, at Ron Carucci or on LinkedIn. So we'd love to stay in touch. Great. And I think also should go and have a look at the TED Talk um, that you did as well because it's quite interesting um, talking about power. It's um, quite a, yeah. a great way to kind of get your head around this whole concept, I think, because I think that's certainly with leadership, it's people, you know, as you say, you know, the misuse of power or the lack of using the power they've got is, um, is certainly a lost kind of um, resource, if nothing else. Mm. Great. All right. Um, I think we're just about running out of time now. So it's really, really lovely to talk to you. I think um, we'll have to find a way to get to Australia because I think um, I think if any other countries are like leadership is always a challenge. Um, and, and I think part of the challenge with electric, um, with particularly political parties in Australia is they don't seem to want to put their head up and actually stand for anything. They just want to kind of like, you know, toe the party line. And I think, you know, the world needs some leaders. They need people to stand up and have some sort of vision of what the future's like, not just, 
you know, we're going to cut your taxes or we're going to do something, but actually have some sort of green plan. Well, I, you know, I, I, by more than thrilled to come and visit your country and help your leaders. So, you know, keep an eye out for opportunities and I'd love to come. Thank you. And so thank you so much for your time. I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be with you. You've just been listening to another great Evolvepreneur podcast interview. We hope you enjoyed it. Please visit evolvepreneur.biz today to find out more about our online community and how you can take part. 